The following sermon is from Pastor Mac Roller at Glen Meadows Baptist Church in San Angelo, Texas. Open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Chronicles. And in the book of 2 Chronicles, we'll be in chapter 12. And in this passage, as you know, we're going through that book or we're going through a theme called Seeking Him. And it's just an attempt to bring an environment of revival in our midst over the next few weeks to where we are kinds of people that want more of God as we surrender more of ourselves to Him. And one of the characteristics of drawing near to God, that God draws near to us, in fact, a characteristic that God is attracted to is humility. And humility is a very difficult characteristic, although it's a necessity virtue for every single Christian. And we will look at how powerful that is in just a second. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verses 1, uh, we will be beginning a story about a destructive characteristic that will take any person down, any family down, any group, any church, it will take a country down. And it is a characteristic that attracts the abandonment of God or the judgment of God. And it is the characteristic of pride. Now, pride has many problems, pride and its problems. And that's really what we're going to look at. So what is pride? Pride is defined in the English dictionary as a spirit, an attitude, not capital S, small s, a spirit of conceit or superior worth, and that is a negative characteristic or a negative quality. But it's also a spirit of pleasing satisfaction or proper self-worth. So you can have pride, like you may have pride in your college, favorite college football team, or you can be arrogantly proud about it and be a jerk, right? We know that kind of person. So that's a bad pride, and there's a good pride. You can be proud of your kids, but then you can be overly proud of your kids to where you think they are all that and better than everybody else's kids, and you would be wrong. <laughs> I'm not knocking your kids. I'm just saying it's your attitude towards them. So here's the reality. In the New Testament, the Greek word that is used means a higher position over someone else when it speaks of pride. And in the New Testament, pride is used, almost always is used very negatively, like in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, where it says this. People, talk about the course of human nature. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful and unholy. Now, you've got all this yicky stuff. And in the middle of that is just adolescent rebellion. It's pride. And it still rivals in the face of God. So in chapter 12, I want to look at this characteristic. Now, sometimes the way to learn what's right is to first learn what's wrong, right? So you can sometimes look at something that is a bad example to figure out what is a good example. And there's not a very few worse examples than... Rehoboam, and he was a bad guy. And in chapter 12, we see this, that when Rehoboam, verse 1, <clears throat> had established his sovereignty and royal power, he abandoned the law of the Lord, he and all of Israel with him, because they were unfaithful to the Lord. In the, first, in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Sheshach, king of Egypt, went to war against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots, 60,000 cavalrymen, and a countless people who came up from Egypt, Libyans, and Shukim, and Ethiopians. 
He captured the fortified cities of Judah, which were these five major cities. He went up, he captured them. He's encroaching on Jerusalem, where it was the capital. And uh, then the prophet comes out because things are getting really bad. Isn't that interesting? That people want to hear from God when things get really bad. They did the same thing there. Then Shemaiah, the prophet, went before Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah who were gathered at Jerusalem because of uh, Shashak, the guy who's, who's warring against them. And he said to them, this is what the Lord says. So they're in a jam. They're about to be sacked. And the prophet comes and says, listen, this is what the Lord says. You have abandoned me. Therefore, I have abandoned you into the hands of Shishak. Now, when God says he's leaving, he's turning out the lights and the party's over. Guess what? It's not a good day. Verse six. So so they did what you probably would do. So the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is righteous. In other words, he's right. We've been wrong. When the Lord saw that they had humbled themselves, the Lord's message came to Shemaiah. And it says, they have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them, but will grant them a little deliverance. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Sheshach. However, verse 8, key verse in this lesson. However, they will become his servants so that they may recognize the difference between serving me and serving the kingdoms of the land. So the king Shishak of Egypt went to war against Jerusalem. He seized the treasury of the lords and he took all the gold and he just basically ruled the country. And then verse 12 says this. When Rehoboam humbled himself, the Lord's anger turned away from him. In other words, God was really mad. God was sending judgment. And God, uh, when Rehoboam repented, and the word there is humbled himself. When he humbled himself, the Lord's anger turned away from him, and he did not destroy him completely. And then there's just a little phrase at the end of this paragraph, and it says, besides that, conditions were good in Judah. Just, just thought that was clever the way that was said. He sacks them. He takes over. But you know what? Things weren't so bad. It was all right. So what do we learn from this? Here's what we learn. We learn about the destructive pride of Rehoboam, which is universal to all people. This destructive pride we see is, was established when he said he established his sovereignty. He established his sovereignty. Now, knowing the history of Israel, here's what we've got. Uh, Rehoboam's daddy was Solomon. Uh, Solomon's daddy was who? Uh, David. And David's, uh, the guy that David served was Saul. So Saul was the first king. Before that, before the monarchy, that means you have a king that rules. And America has never had a monarchy. Never. We've always had a, a, a democracy. That's what we claim. But then you had a monarchy where there's a king. And then before that, they had a theocracy, meaning theos, God. Ocracy means political rule. So before that, God is the one who was the king and the ruler over Israel. So in the monarchy, God said, listen, I want things to work like this. You're going to have a moral law, meaning that there's the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments. Don't kill, don't murder, don't steal, love your mom and dad, etc. Sabbath, uh, etc. And then there is the civil law. Look, when somebody runs into you with their chariot, you take them to the insurance company, and this is how you settle things. And, and there was all this. And then there was the ceremonial law which was, this is how you worship. You have priests, you have a temple, you have tabernacle, and this is how you do it. So there's those three laws, and you obey me. 
Here's the Bible. Moses write it. Moses wrote the Bible. They had it. They lived. God ruled. God spoke to them directly. And then here's what Israel did. Israel says, uh, you know, the Philistines, they have king. How come we don't have a king? We would really like a king. The Moabites have a king. We, we don't have a king. We would really like a king. And the Jebusites, and they just went, everybody has a king. We don't have a king. We have a God, and nobody knows his name. We just call him uh, Yahweh, which means he is. That's all he knows. We don't have a name. We want to be like everybody else. And God says, no, you don't want a king. The day you choose a king, he will do what? Tax you. Pfft, horrible. He's going to do it. He's going to turn you into a military. He's going to count you, and he's going to tax you. Don't do it. And they said, but we really want a king. He said, all right, I'll give you a king. You're not going to like it. Gave him a king, Saul, then David, then who? Solomon, then Rehoboam. And Rehoboam didn't follow like David. He wasn't a man after God's own heart. He did very detestable things. In fact, if you go to Israel, you go to the north part of Israel, above the Sea of Galilee in a place called Dan, you can find an area to where he sets up a temple. And that's horrible. That breaks the law of God. God says, no, the temple is going to be in Jerusalem. You worship there. And he said, and so he put himself in the place of God where he says, I establish my sovereignty. In other words, I make the rules. Now, just a point. As you see the theocracy turning into a, a monarchy, and you know that you do not challenge the word of God. He knew that, and yet he did it. And here's what you also learn. God is sovereign. God has no rivals. God has no partners. This, this, this is probably going to sound wrong because you've always heard otherwise. But this is truth. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need us. You may have heard that when God, before he created anything, that God was lonely and he needed someone to love. It's not true. God's in need of nothing. God is sovereign. God is all wise. God is all powerful. He's everywhere at once. He is complete and God is God. And sovereignty he has no rivals. He has no partners. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need... Now listen. Now when you're willing and you're, you, you want the things that God wants, then he uses you and he uses me. And that's fantastic. And the more people who do that, the expansion of his kingdom grows. But God's very content with being God. But not only did he establish his own sovereignty, he established his royal power. And then what's really funny about that is... He's like saying, I've got my sovereignty and I've got my power. But then this little nation comes up that just knocks him out as if to show you ain't got what you think you got. You know what? The only power that anybody has is the power that God allows them to have, period. It's, a, it's just used. It's, it's momentary. You have a momentary ability, just like your life, momentary. You feel really, really good. You're able to run. You're able to jump. And next thing you know, I can't run anymore and I can't jump anymore. You only have it for a little while, right? That's just like America at times. But also, he led Israel to trust in him more than trusting in the Lord. And here's where you have where it really makes God angry because it says that all of Israel abandoned the Lord. It says that. So who led Israel? Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a charismatic personality, and what happened was what's called the cult of personality. 
The cult of personality is where you have a figure that embezzles God's glory, puts it upon themselves, and when they say they're working for God or they're glorifying God, they actually want more attention. And the more attention they get, the more authority and cult-like personality they get, and the more people want to follow, which just continues to regenerate and build and swell until you have something that is way beyond anybody's ego, and they thrive on it. And I want you to be incredibly careful of this. I don't care if they're an entertainer. I don't care if they're a man behind the pulpit opening up a Bible or a political leader. Be very, very wary of people that draw attention to themselves and demand respect. That kind of person is to be concerned about because it's a problem. The cult of personality, we see it all around. In fact, every cult has a person like that. They love the self-worship. They love the authority over other people, and God condemns it, and that's what he did in Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a leader that wanted absolute sovereignty, absolute power, and he led Israel in the wrong direction, and that is a major problem, and it rests upon many people. But also, I want you to see something. Not only the destructive pride of Rehoboam, but also what it says, and God abandoned his people for, uh, that God abandoned his people, and he did it for a reason. Now, when I, was, when I was working on this outline and I was thinking of things to say, uh, I'm thinking, can, can I say that? I mean, I've always heard that God never abandons his people, right? In fact, I can think of some passages. The Great Commission, behold, I am with you always. I will not abandon you. And I'm thinking, can I say God abandons his people? So I read some commentators and I read on it and heard some things, but you know what? You have to say that because that's exactly what the word of God says. The word of God, read with me. He says very clearly, look at verse five. Then Shemaiah the prophet went to Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah who were gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak, the, the Egyptian warrior. And he said to them, this is what the Lord says. You have abandoned me. Therefore, I have abandoned you. And he gives the reason. First of all, the abandonment of the Lord is a scary, scary prospect to think of that. And, it, and it, is, it is a problem. And the reason that God did it is because God abandoned Israel to their enemies. He said, look, I'm, I'm pulling back my hand of protection and I'm pulling back my hand of sovereignty and, or not my hand of sovereignty, but my hand of power. And I'm going to let this Egyptian king come up and get you. Now think about this. If Israel was going to be dominated by anybody, not Egypt, because they got a bad experience with this Egyptian domination. 400 years of slavery. And I imagine the people hearing about these guys coming from the south, coming up to Israel and conquering, and it has a relationship to Egypt. They're probably thinking, oh no, not again. We blew it. Why did we blew it? Because we abandoned God. So they were, they were turned over to an enemy, turned over to an enemy. And, and here's the reason. God abandoned Israel because Israel abandoned God. And that's just an incredible statement. So the song that we, we sang before I got up here is talking about how great, how great, how great is your love, right? And we talk about how, and we know this is true. We love God because he first loved us, right? It's God's love that attracts you to him. 
It's, it's God's mercy that attracts you. And so we love God because he first loved us and he gave us the capability, but, but God abandons us because we first abandoned God. Do you see the flip of that? We love God because he first loves us and then God abandons us because we first abandoned God. The New Testament speaks of it in, a, in another way. The New Testament speaks of it that Romans chapter one, you fail to acknowledge God, you fail to give thanks to God an ungrateful heart. Therefore, God turns you over to your reprobate what? Heart. God turns you over to yourself. So you like, you like leaving the presence of the Lord. Maybe you, you, like, uh, you don't want to follow the Lord. You don't like being in the word or you abandon it. You neglect it. Or, or maybe you just keep one finger in because you'll, you'll go to church every once in a while or you'll turn on the radio, listen to a Christian song. But, but the rest of the week, you don't acknowledge God. That's really an abandoning, abandoning of God. It really is. And God says, if you like that and you want that, then I will oblige you and I will remove my presence and power from you. And while we're over here playing the hypocrite, if you will, then God says, you need some more rope? Here you go. See, God is a gentleman. And he allows us to do what we want to do. Have you noticed that? That oftentimes when we're walking away, whenever I'm walking away from the things of God, it seems so easy. It, sometimes it even seems so right. So when I, when I make decisions that are pleasing to self, then it always feels right. Because you and I can convince ourselves of whatever we want. In fact, there's a book written out called The Agony of Deceit, written by a guy named Greenspan, not Alan Greenspan. Well, Alan Greenspan, but not the one who was over the economics of the United States. It's another guy. He makes the point, he says, the smarter you are, the more gullible you are. And I thought, no, come on, bro, that's not right. And then he said, you know, the dudes who followed the hell Bob Comet, remember that about 15, 20 years ago? And there were people that when the, uh, the hell Bob Comet was going by, they had a cult because there was a leader there. And this leader said, listen, there's, there's Martians or aliens on the other side of the comet. And if we dress up in white robes and we wear Converse tennis shoes, then we will be caught up together when the comet goes by the United States, right? Do you remember that? Am I the only one? Ah, hell Bob Comet cult. Do you know that the average person there had a, a degree, had a master's degree, was a graduate of a graduate school. And there were many attorneys and there were many PhDs and there were many doctors. And he uses that as an illustration. And here's what I'm saying. Here's the point. That intelligent people, which all of, all of us are, have the ability to marshal enough facts into our own camp to convince us that we are right. That's how that works. And the problem is pride. How we bring all the facts together, unless, you're, unless you compare it to the truth. When you compare it to the truth, this is our guide, and it shows us what is right, and then we adopt those truths and we apply it. But without that, we're in a problem, and we've been abandoned by God when we follow self. And we become a law unto ourselves. There's, there's very few sins that aren't pleasurable that don't stroke the pride, that don't stroke the ego. In fact, the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season. I mean, it is really fun to do 110 miles an hour down 277 for a season until you see the Christmas lights behind you. Then it gets really sad. Or until you hurt somebody or you hurt yourself and it gets really, for a season it's fun. 
And so we convince ourselves that this sin is going is better for me than God's word. That's what happens within my soul when I sin. It's what happens with you too when you sin. And it works like this. We abandon the law of God, either out of neglect or out of choosing our own way. It's an abandonment of the law of God and God abandons us. It happens like that. It's like God says, you don't want me? That's okay, I'm not begging you. Continue to walk in this way. And it's not, in fact, how's that going for you? Probably not so good. And that's what Israel saw, but also knew this. It happens and we do this because of self-deception. Self-induced deception. Self-reliance, which is not good. Self-indulgence, which is not good. Self-satisfaction, not great. Self-esteem, whatever that is, nobody can really define self-esteem. It's kind of like the amalgamation of all these other emotions and you try to measure it and it doesn't really, you can't really measure it or qualitatively compatible to what is good or what is not good because it's not. It's just hard to define. Or self-fulfillment, I've got to fulfill myself and my own desires, whatever that is, and then self-respect and we all want it. And what it comes down to is the ego, which is the Greek word for I, ego. Ego's a bad thing. Do you, has anybody ever had your feelings hurt? I mean, about a year ago, I would have said, oh yeah, I get my feelings hurt all the time. Until I read a little book right here. And Timothy Keller makes a clear statement. And he says, you know what? Feelings don't have feelings. So how can your feelings be hurt? Feelings reflect ego. Feelings, re feelings protect ego. So if my pride is hurt, then I take a sad demeanor or a mad demeanor or a pouty demeanor or aggressive demeanor, but really it's an assault against my ego. In fact, I would highly recommend this book. We have a few of these for $20 in the back. We cut the price in half to 10, but I'm making it $2 today. There you go. That's it. It's, it's called, it's called the, listen to this title by, by Timothy Keller, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. 45 little pages, some of the most profound pages you will ever read. And he makes that statement about feelings don't have feelings is in here, page 16, 17. It's very, very good. I would highly recommend it. it even though it's 45 pages, you're going to chew on every sentence at a time. He's a very profound writer. But it is the freedom to forget about you. You wonder what people are thinking about you? They're really not thinking about you. You're the one thinking about you. And having the freedom to quit thinking about you. What a joy. Imagine now you have all the capacity to think about the things that are really important in life instead of just me. That's, that's not good. But God, listen to this. God abandoned his people for a reason because they abandoned him. But God also abandoned his people for a purpose. There's something to gain from this when God pulls his hand back from your life. And there's something to gain. Usually there's pressure involved. Usually there's a rub that just kind of blisters. And it comes in many different sources. And let me show you many, a couple of places in the Bible to where this rub and this pressure took place. For instance, whenever uh, I would do something wrong, like in school, and the teacher would apply some pressure to my life. Now, back in the day, it would usually end up in one spot, right? But nowadays, the pressure is more like go to timeout, 
or here's some extra homework or whatever, and that's a pressure. Or maybe you're at work and you keep showing up late and the boss puts pressure on you by docking your pay or giving some kind of sanction in your life, or maybe you've been fired because of that. And who hasn't been fired? If you haven't ever been fired, I don't trust you. I'll just be honest. You haven't learned any lessons yet. So the reality is it's this pressure in life that begins to move upon you. And we always reject the pressure and we make accusations towards the one giving the pressure, like the football coach or the boss, and we get mad about it. But let me show you where God uses this type of pressure to get rid of your pride so that you can learn to be humble. So one pressure is just removal. God takes you from one place and he rips you out of this place and he takes you somewhere else. Maybe removal out of a family or a job or a level of comfort that you experienced. There was a boy by the name of Joseph. Joseph was in a great family, a miraculous family, actually. He had 11 other brothers. And Joseph had this dream. Man, I had this dream. And all of you brothers, you older brothers, you're going to bow down to me. And they're like, forget that. Tied him up, sold him into slavery. And he was completely removed from his family. And what an incredible, horrible thing to take place for a little boy. But yeah, you know what? You know what Joseph said? What man meant for evil, God turned into good. That type of, and he saved a nation. You take the individual of, re, you take rejection. Rejection is a lot of pressure. And I guarantee you, I know you've re, been rejected by people just like I have. And rejection hurts. And sometimes we say it hurts our feelings, but really it just hurts our pride and our feelings are responding. Think about Moses. Moses was, he grew up in the palace. He was Pharaoh's daughter's son, and he was moving to be the prince, and things happened, and he, there he is seeing a couple guys fighting, and he breaks it up, and they said, what are you? You going to kill us like you killed that other guy and hit him? And all of a sudden, he realized he had been discovered, and he hit the road, and he had been rejected by Israel. He had been rejected by Egypt, and he left. And you know what? God turned him, turned him into the greatest prophet that ever lived. You ever been rebuked publicly? That hurts. No one likes that. Take Peter, for instance. Peter was rebuked publicly three times. Peter is one of the prominent uh, disciples in the New Testament, an apostle. And Peter is standing there, and they just left Caesarea Philippi, and he's with Jesus. And Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, man, God just told you that. That's incredible. Now I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And then Peter says, no, over my dead body. And Jesus looks at him and says, what? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus just called Peter Satan. Everybody heard it echoing through the mountains. And some Baptist preacher in 2021 is saying it again. Everybody knows it. Then Jesus says, Man, y'all are going to deny me. And Peter says, I will never deny you. And he looks at him and says, Peter, you're going to deny me before the cock crows three times. Get used to it. And then later, Peter, Paul, in the book of Galatians, says, I rebuked Peter to his face in front of everybody. You talk about pressure. You talk about hurting your ego, getting your feelings hurt, whatever that means. Peter turned into one of the greatest men that have ever lived because what he did is he fielded it. He took it. He processed all those situations under the sovereign, all-powerful hand of God and said, God, I want to serve you. I don't care about me. And he became a better man. Reversal of circumstances. 
You know, things are going great. Next thing you know, things are really bad. I was sharing with you a couple of stories about our life, how my teenage boy looked at me and said, man, it stinks to be a roller, doesn't it? I said, yeah, it does. It stinks to be a roller. That's my last name if you don't know me. It's just horrible. Reversal. Job, a man that had everything, land, wealth, influence, family, and then in one day, he's all gone. And all of his friends says, man, God hurt you. He abandoned you. You need to rebel against that. And he said, though he slay me, yet will I worship him. And Job turned into the greatest man in, that fell into any kind of poverty. And then you got, gosh, this is the hardest. When God refuses to answer prayers, knowing that God is all powerful and knowing that he's able to heal just like that, having seen it with my own eyes, having read about it from, from the time of scripture through many, many other experiences in life, and yet when God refuses not to heal. So to believe that God is all powerful and can heal, but yet doesn't, is kind of a pain. It's a pressure, it's a rub that's in our hearts. The Apostle Paul experiences that. When Paul had, he called it a thorn in the flesh. Some say he, it was his side, he couldn't see very well. And then how Paul would pray for people and people would be healed all over. And then Paul prayed, said, God, would you heal me of this thorn in the flesh? And God said, no, I won't. So then Paul prayed again at another time. He said, God, will you heal me of this? I, I could be so more pro productive and if I could just see better, if that was it. And God said, no. And then he prayed a third time. God, will you heal me of this? And then God says, no, because my grace is sufficient for all you ever need. Thank you for listening to today's message from Pastor Mac Roller at Glen Meadows Baptist Church, where we exist to make disciples who make disciples by living life together. If you are blessed by today's message, we encourage you to go to our website at gmbc.org to check out previous sermons, leadership podcasts, upcoming events, and find out how you and your family can get connected. We can't wait to do life with you.